All that was pretty much true. I did retire from my job with the Maryland Department of Health and Mental Hygiene at the end of March, but that was the end of March about six years ago. So, <laughs> so, but there was a true statement. It was an absolutely true statement. I had this wonderful aha experience. Uh, fortunately, you know, it wasn't like Saul on the road to Tarsus where he had this thing and he fell off his horse. Because I was driving across the Chesapeake Bay Bridge at the time and uh, wanted to keep full control of the vehicle. But I was on my way to uh, preach at the Chestertown, Maryland uh, Unitarian Universalist Church, uh, to Chester River UUs. And I was listening, as I love to do when I go off early in the morning to, uh, to speak to a Morning Edition on NPR. And they were interviewing Michael Pollan. The, the, the just the, the most marvelous writer on a range of issues, including how our food is raised and healthy eating and so forth. And he was saying, you know, he found a lot of macro advice about eating, you know, little pieces of very specific things, a lot of which was wrong. You know, that you'd go for a period where they tell us, don't eat such and so, it's very bad for you. And then, oh, wait a minute, no, such and such is good for you, if <clears throat> only you don't eat too much. <clears throat> and there was a lot of conflicting advice. And he said, that's not really useful. Um, so he reduced the rules for healthy eating to three. Eat food. <laughs> not too much. Mostly plants. Yeah, I figured I'd get that. This is good call and response. Let's do it again, all together. Each food, most too much, mostly plants. Great. Now, you know, what does this mean? You know, eat food. Well, you know, that's what we do eat, right? And a lot of stuff we eat is not classically food. So, you know, if you can't pronounce the names of the stuff, the ingredients, you know, it's probably something that you shouldn't eat. And not too much. Uh, you know, what does that mean? Well, that's, you know, open to your individual <clears throat> interpretation. Uh, mostly plants. Well, what's, I mean, vegetarians like me would say, what's with this mostly business? Uh, but, you know, it's, it's a component of a good diet that should have mostly plants. So he said, follow these rules and you won't go wrong. As you notice, these are behavioral injunctions. They don't tell you to say, believe in food. But, but they tell you, you know, simply, here's how to approach eating. Follow these broad, general rules, and you'll eat healthfully. So, you know, and this is, by and large, good advice. It's, it's excellent advice. And, you know, some of us will still need macro advice. I'm sorry, micro advice. You know, such as watch your salt intake. Uh, if you eat too much of a certain kind of food, you'll get heartburn. If you eat, you know, so we all have our own minor rules. Uh, and we'll develop our own schools of thought, perhaps even our own religions with our own gurus about, you know, how we should eat. Uh, but you won't go wrong if you adhere to the simple, you know, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And, you know, I've been 
in the business of talking about religion for a long time. In fact, I calculated it the other day for this talk. It's about 38 years since you know, I started uh, in ethical culture leadership. And I confess that it's taken Mr. Pollan's insight to get me on the right path. Because, you know, I can go on and on and on about what's important for living an ethical life. And I can go on and on about what I believe. And I can give you my, you know, the ten points of my personal creed and this and that and everything. And um, it's kind of a jumble, really. And thanks to Michael Pollan, I've got this insight. And I've been inspired to reduce my religion to three sentences. And they're these. All living things are connected. My behavior counts. Act on the basis of the first two sentences. Now, there you have it. There I have it. Uh, that's one sentence uh, telling me fact. And I think, you know, and I'll go into scientists to show you, it's a fact that all living things are connected. You might want to use interrelated or some other words, but that, uh, that'll do. Uh, a second sentence is a belief statement. You know, I believe that my behavior counts. There can be, can give examples of times when perhaps it hasn't, but I believe that's an important statement. We can call those affirmations. <clears throat> I think all living things are connected. My behavior counts. I affirm those things. And the third one is an imperative sentence about behavior. It begins act. You know, not just think your behavior counts. Not just think all living things are connected, but act on that basis. Now those are 17 words, which is 10 more than Mr. Collin uses. Uh, and I don't know if they're entirely provable. But those are the things that I believe in, and I think those are the things that I have to believe in. They give me a simple kind of overarching framework that I can hang things on. They give me uh, all sorts of, you know, I think of them maybe as, well, you know, one of those computer programs for organizing photographs. You know, you've got all these, these categories you can put things in, and you can have subcategories, but you need some general organizing things. Uh, I want things to be in the right categories. I want to see how things relate to each other. I know that things are complicated because life is complicated. And because it's complicated, <coughs> excuse me, because it's complicated, we have to use for, we have to look for simplicity. And that gives us a kind of clarity at a fundamental level. Now later on I'll give you uh, a, another rule that I use that I, more specifically, to tell, tell me how to act. Uh, and other than that, other than that additional sentence that's coming later in my talk, uh, I've given you the gist of what I'm going to say today. You know, all living things are connected. My behavior counts act on the basis of those first two sentences. So if this is the point where if you, know, you want to go off and meditate on what I've said, uh, or on anything else. I mean, you've got the key to what I want to say here today. And I'll call you back when I get to this, 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 this other part. Um, so, uh, for now, as promised, the commentary. 
My title is Three Sentences Plus Commentary. You get the commentary. So let's look at these three sentences and kind of spin them out. All living things are connected. Maybe connected isn't the best word. Maybe interrelated, interconnected, related, maybe that's a better word. People were aghast when you know, they thought Darwin said that we have monkeys in their family tree. And I can imagine how they'd react if they were told that we have DNA with just about everything. Uh, we share about 36% of DNA with fruit flies, 7% uh, with bacteria, 15% with mustard grass. That's, you know, that's a plant for goodness sake, and we, we share DNA. Roundworms, um, 21%. Uh, it shouldn't be too surprising then that things like chimpanzees uh, and humans share 98% of their DNA. But I find it astounding that we and zebrafish share 85% of DNA. Now, I'm not saying that there's no significant difference, biological or ethical or whatever, between us and zebrafish, but, you know, just saying. Uh, so, all living things are interrelated, and that includes humans. But for now, I'm just going to talk about our creatureliness, you know, our, our relationship to the, the nat natural world that we share with all these plants and animals and even microscopic organisms in our gut that, you know, we increasingly realize we depend on those stuff down there to be healthy. Uh, we are just one shared ball of life on this precious blue-green planet of ours. And although we are the dominant creature on this planet, we are still what biologists, uh, um, we are, as cell biologist Ursula Goodenough reminds us, but a tiny part of an enormous context. In her book, The Sacred Depths of Nature, she challenges us. She writes, if we can revere how things are and can find ways to express gratitude for our existence, then we should be able to figure out, with a great deal of work and goodwill, how to share the earth with one another and with other creatures, how to restore and preserve its elegance and grace. Restore and conserve its elegance and grace. Well, we certainly aren't preserving elegance and grace, are we? Everywhere one looks, there is evidence of degradation that we humans are inflicting on our environment. A lot with the, the stuff we're putting in the air, we now goes under the heading of you know, global warming or climate change. Uh, there's uh, you go to the uh, beach, you might find an abundance of jellyfish, both because the water temperatures are rising and because we're overfishing their natural predators. Uh, a few years ago, we read a lot about the silence of the frogs. You know, no more peep, peep, peep. We're killing the frogs with the various chemicals and toxins that we're putting in the environment. And if it's bad for frogs, it's bad for us. And the silence of the frogs is telling us something. 
When Goodenough talks about finding a way to express gratitude for existence, she's talking about an essentially religious attitude. As the great American philosopher John Dewey put it, the essentially unreligious attitude is that which attributes human achievement and purposes to humanity in isolation for the world of physical nature and our fellow human beings. Our successes are dependent upon the cooperation of nature. The sense of the dignity of human nature is as religious as is the sense of awe and reverence when it rests on the sense of human nature as a cooperating part of a larger whole. We need to be a cooperating part of a larger whole. Indeed, to me, this sense of a larger whole forms the human, forms the rather the unifying concept that the word God does to a lot of people. I don't need or use the God concept myself, but this concept of a larger whole, we're all in this together, we're all part of nature, us, the little plants, the little animals, all of us together, that on the one hand we're insignificant. You know, we humans are a minority of creatures on this planet. But on the other hand, we are tremendously significant because we have the power to destroy the whole thing. In fact, we need to heed the warning that Edward Erickson, leader of this society, gave in this very room 43 years ago when he told his listeners, and I quote, a generation never has the right to forfeit the future. It is not ours to hold hostage. Not one of us is immortal, but we must safeguard with religious humility the immortality of the human future. Now, I think Ed was primarily talking about the nuclear threat back there 43 years ago. But I read these words with awe and realize in that these 43 years, we have come to realize, to understand, that we are not just jeopardizing our human future, but the future of this whole earth that we're on. So there you have the first sentences. All living things are connected, and my commentary on it. Now, we've gotten to our, my second sentence. My behavior counts. And I would expand that. I think your behavior counts. Our behavior counts. All of us. What we do matters. Which I think also has the corollary that we matter. We matter because we're important. And our behavior counts. And on this I'm supported by modern cognitive research. Uh, there's a wonderful story about this, about A.J. Musty. A.J. Musty was a leading figure in U.S. labor, radical, and peace movements uh, for much of the 20th century, say from the First World War through the Vietnam War. A uh, person who probably a few years ago in this room wouldn't have needed much introduction, and probably doesn't to some of you, but today does. During the Vietnam War, when he was already a very old man, Dr. Musty was out in an anti-Vietnam War vigil in front of the White House. I think it was January. And, you know, he's there. You know, he's 
wearing his suit and his top coat and his hat and holding the candle out there, and it's January. And a reporter comes up to him and says, you know, Dr. Musty, you know, here in the middle of the night, there's hardly anyone around, you're standing here in front of the White House, do you think you're going to change America? Musty thought. He says, no, I don't think I'm going to change America. I'm standing here so America doesn't change me. And so, you know, Musty's witness could be viewed perhaps as an exercise in self-indulgence. You know, it doesn't matter whether he changes anything, he's doing it for himself. Or it could be uh, viewed as a heroic act of witness. You know, it doesn't matter whether it actually changes things, I'm called here to witness. Uh, but I think the two are combined. There's a cognitive scientist up at, now at the University of Toronto, if he's still there, named Keith Stanovich. And he, he writes that being a certain type of person is not a singular event that can be discreetly experienced like a consumption good. We need to behave the way we believe to be right, even if it only has symbolic unity, utility, because it can help us behave as the type of person we want to be when it really counts. In other words, it helps us to be the kind of person we want to be. Uh, Stanley Hauerwas, a theologian and a philosopher, says much the same thing. He said, you know, your character is not just a discrete, you know, not formed by you do, you do an act. It's formed by a whole range of, you know, how you live your life, how you decide on what's important to you and what's going to guide you. So all these things add up. We want our actions certainly to be cons consequential. When you go to a demonstration, and as in the candlelighting we, we had reference to, the work that you've done on uh, equal marriage, the work you've done on other issues, you know, those are important things. You want them to be consequential. You want, when Amanda you know, writes a letter to the editor in the Washington Post, publishes it, people to say, yeah, look at this, she's right. We've got to change the way we do things. Well, we know. You know, it's, that's not always going to happen. Sometimes it'll have an influence. Sometimes it won't. But I, sometimes it'll always have an influence. It may only sometimes influence the larger world, but it always influences you if you act in the way that you feel is concordant with your values. So even if it doesn't make a larger difference, it makes a difference to you. It has a value for you of confirming the kind of person you hope you are and hope to be. And by doing so gives you that extra oomph that you need to keep on doing it even if you don't see immediate results. Furthermore, you know, we might find that in the longer view of history that uh, some stuff we thought was inconsequential really was, was, had an effect. Uh, there's a well, now recently deceased uh, British historian named uh, uh, Eric Hobsbawm. And uh, he, he tells the story about he was commissioned to write a short history of the 20th century. That is basically his lifetime, say, from 
World War One and the end of World War One up to the 1980s, you know, covering those 60 years. Uh, he kind of kept putting it off and putting it off. And then suddenly, between 1989 and 1991, communism fell, the Soviet Union disappeared, the, the countries behind the Iron Country Curtain were no longer behind the Iron Curtain. Everything had changed. He said, look at how different the world was if you looked at it from, say, 1992 than if you looked at it in 1985 and how different his history was. So maybe that Czechoslovak spring of 1968 that Soviet tanks crushed, maybe that wasn't a failure. Maybe that was a harbinger of change to come. Uh, maybe uh, the people killed in Tiananmen Square, which people in China just don't know about, anymore, it's not in the news. But maybe someday that will become, you know, we'll look at that and say, yeah, that was a starting point for something. So the main thing is, we just don't know. We have to believe that our behavior counts, even if we realize that we can't do everything. The uh, Quaker historian, philosopher Elton Trueblood reminds us that all witness necessarily involves the use of the first person singular. It is never somebody in general who bears witness. It is always an individual with an individual consciousness. Takes us back to A.J. Musty there, maybe. You know, the individual who's out there bearing witness uh, in a world that you hope will, will pay attention. So I've been talking about public behavior here. I think the same thing is true in our interpersonal relationships which I'll get to in a minute. But just to capsulize here then, so I've given at least an inkling, I hope, of why for me the sentence, you know, the second sentence in my religion in three sentences is that my behavior counts. And, you know, if I wanted to do an old-fashioned two-hour sermon, I could give plenty of examples in my life and the lives of other people I know of where it seemed like behavior didn't count and it really, in some level that you couldn't even begin to think about at the time, paid off. So let's move to the third sentence, and that's the behavioral injunction, act, do something. Uh, and this is where things get difficult. You know, Pollen's three sentences, you'll note, do not tell you what to have for dinner tonight. You know, do not tell you uh, whether, you know, how dente the spaghetti should be. Do not tell you, you know, whether to use red leaf lettuce or green leaf or any of those things. And those, you know, you have to figure out for yourself. You know, you can go to the sacred scriptures, uh, the joy of cooking, the Moosewood Bible, uh, or go to the saints, you know, Julia Child, James Beard, or even Betty Crocker. There are many, many guides to tell you how to cook and plan meals, just as there are many religions to tell you how to do things. And similarly, there are many guides and rules and maxims and stories that tell us these things. And we like simple maxims because they usher us into the complexity of things, you know, without telling us specifically what to do. 
And you know, even Pollen has has uh, you know went back to this, and he invited his readers, "Tell me your household rules." And so people commented on you know how to live out his three rules, and you got all these different responses to him. It's kind of I don't know the the Pollen-esque Talmud or something, where you get all the commentaries on on, on his simple rules. Um, well, we can you know there's the famous story of uh, this. This guy goes up to the Rabbi Hillel back in uh, the old days and says, uh, you know, Rabbi, explain to me the Torah while I stand on one foot. Now, I don't know what, what actually happened there. It wouldn't surprise me if, if Hillel originally said, you know, go away, you idiot. You know, don't bother me. <laughs> uh, uh, and then later on thought, wait a minute, that's what I should have said to the guy. But anyway, what is recorded that he said was, you know, do unto others, do not unto others, do that which would, would you not have done unto you. The rest is commentary. And Jesus says much the same thing, but he puts it in positive form. Uh, the maxim we know is the golden rule. Do unto others is you would they do unto you. And all religions, I'll make the big generalization here, I think all religions and cultures have a version of this, whether you go to... Uh, Confucian, uh, Confucius, or whomever. And we find it just popping up all over the place in the first century of, of the common era. There's Rabbi Akiva, there's Apostle Paul, who attributes it to Jesus. And they all boil it down to kind of, you know, thou shalt love thy neighbor as yourself. And uh, as an example of this, because, you know, what does this mean, people ask, uh, we get in Luke the story of the Good Samaritan which has for 2,000 years been of inspirational story. And by the way, that was the text that Martin Luther King took for his last sermon the night before he was assassinated in Memphis. He talked about the Good Samaritan. So these things are effective. So, you know, Hillel and Jesus and Confucius and Paul and Luke and Akiva uh, understood that their guidance had to be simple and because it was simple, it would not cover everything. <laughs> they were not trying to reduce morality to a slogan, but to use a short injunction to help people adhere to some larger and more overreaching framework. Hillel, after all, did not say that his version of the golden rule was the be-all and end-all. He said it was the beginning. It was the starting place. It was the entryway. So my standing... Uh, on one, you know, standing on one leg part of the search is simple. And it helps to fulfill that third sentence of mine about act in the light of the first two sentences. So how do we do? So, okay, wake up. Here's the part. I know, actually, you've been very attentive, and I appreciated that. But, but I, I said I would give you warning when I come to the thing that I find is then the simple rule, the corollary, that helps me act on these other things I talked about. And it's, I'm giving, I'll give examples in interpersonal life, but I think it also applies in larger groups in the relationship between nature. I have found in my own life that Felix Adler's reformulation of the golden rule, which he called the supreme ethical rule, is a useful, simple, and profound guide. Visitors this morning, Felix Adler was the guy who started this whole ethical culture thing and wrote, unfortunately, in a really 
one of the worst religious writers I've encountered in terms of expression, <laughs> but, but, but in terms of ideas, has ideas that really, really are effective. And, and I believe that his reformulation of the golden rule is, is useful, simple, and profound, and one of ethical culture's great contributions to moral life. We often express it as act to elicit the best in others and thereby in yourself. And that's a useful and streamlined version. But what I've really come to appreciate is the, the full clunkier version that I think is more accurate. Act so as to elicit the best in others and thereby in yourself. It's more general, it's not directed to a specific interaction. And I can tell you it works. But so act to elicit the best in others and thereby in yourself. It starts with the others. It's not doing to others as you would do unto you. Start appreciating the others, look at the other, get a sense of the other, and you know what they might be feeling and thinking, and act to bring out the best that you attribute is in them, that at least you certainly hope is in them. Uh, and let me give you just you know, one example here, and I like it because it's from a fellow ethical culture leader. Um, Susan Rose, who's the leader of the Ethical Society Without Walls. Uh, once, she wrote about this on her blog, so I'm not telling secrets, you know, you put it on the blog, it's there for the world. Uh, that she talked about, she had some horrible thing happen with some people, or someone she knows, she thought, really did her wrong. And she said, what am I going to do about this? And I don't know what went in her mind. I mean, some things in those situations that go into your mind you, you don't want to do because you'll go to jail. But, you know, but she thought, okay, look, I'm, you know, ethical culture is my religion. It tells me human relations are important. Uh, so what she says, I have to focus on the relationships here to resolve this. And here's what she wrote. Uh, oh, she first she said, you know, I realized my relationship told me I still had an obligation to elicit the best in others. She wrote, I had a choice, choice to make. I could act in a way that would not further the relationships, let them remain difficult, or more likely get worse. Or I could make a decision to put aside my anger, as justified as it was, and to do what I could do to elicit the best in the others, and to be more concerned with relationships than with being right. And so while at the time she wrote this, um, a few years ago, she still wasn't sure exactly what she was going to do. She knew that whatever decision she made would be focusing on the relationships involved. And that in order to bring out the, and this helped bring out the best in her. I mean, I sometimes thought of, you know, printing this out and taping it on the dashboard of my car, or maybe right on my horn. Uh, because, you know, saying we all have things that, you know, you can do something. And is that going to make the situation better? Is that going to resolve that? Or is that going to make, make the whole thing just worse? Now, note that what Susan did was apply this framework, you know, with, in the context of an overarching framework. She wanted to maintain healthy relationships. Yeah, her... Her frame of reference, and I hope ours, was the, gives the maintenance of good relationships a high value. 
Now, it always, that, that doesn't trump everything. I had a, um, there's a member of the Baltimore Ethical Society, a friend of mine years ago, who talked about how she had to, she had some good friendships that dissolved because she couldn't abide the racism of her friends. You know, she had something overarching that pulled her that was more important than the friendship, is that you know, she couldn't encourage that racism. Ultimately, though, we're left like Pollen's acolytes, pondering the eat food. We realized that his goal was not to create a universal menu planner, but to give people a simple guideline that they could apply to his, their lives. I believe that if you follow Pollen's guidelines, and if you act to elicit the best in others, you'll become healthier and a better self in a healthier and better world. It doesn't mean that you'll necessarily do the right thing. It doesn't mean that if you apply these rules, we will agree on any particular political or social issue. You can still follow these rules and have vast disagreement with people. But I do believe that we will be better people in a better world. I think that's something we do individually, and I think we something that we do in groups like this. We come together in ethical societies to support each other, to uh, so that help us all to do individually and together what's good in the world. That's the ethical culture way of being in the world. My way of organizing these pursuits then begins with all living things are connected, my behavior counts, and act on the basis of the first three. The first tells me about my place in the world and, and its people and the animals I share it with. The second reassures me that I will make a difference. And the third urges me to act, acknowledging that the first two you know, secure in the knowledge that the first two impact on, on me and the world, that I am enmeshed in a whole world of relationships, and that even if I'm unsure of what my acts should be, that they will have meaning. And in that way, I hope that I will be a responsible person, I hope I will be thoughtful, I hope that I will be joyous, and I hope we will be living in a committed relationship to our human and non-human fellow denizens of this planet. I hope that for me, I hope that for you, I hope that for all of us, and I believe that all of us together can accomplish that.